Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. I made a huge mistake yesterday. I said that yesterday was Arbor Day. It was actually Flag Day. So I apologize to all celebrants of Flag Day and to all those who love Arbor Day for my, my boneheaded mistake. I will attempt to do better. I don't think today is a holiday, so I'll be making no joke about today. Nor will I be making a joke about my colleagues here today. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so uh, one thing I should mention is that we are closing our special double summer issue, our July-August issue today. Stuff will be going up online uh, over the course, I, I'm not quite sure when, over the course of the next week. Um, our lead article is by our very own Noah Rothman, an excerpt from his brilliant new book, The Rise of the New Puritans. And we are calling it You Are What You Don't Eat, How Food Became Politicized. We'll be talking more about this piece in due course and about Noah's book in due course. But I also want to sort of commend to your attention just to whet your appetite. I'm just going to tell you a couple of the really fantastic things we have on tap in the July-August issue that should encourage you to go to commentary.org and subscribe. If you're not a subscriber yet, we have a beautiful piece by Joseph Epstein on grief. We have Todd Lindbergh on uh, what the what the war in Ukraine has done for the West. We have my sister, Ruthie Bloom, uh, explaining uh, in very authoritative fashion this extremely complicated case involving the Palestinian American journalist who was shot uh, during a protest in in Janine um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Naomi Riley on a really kind of jaw dropping book by Lara Bazelon about being a mother, uh, Christopher Scalia on Doug Murray's uh, War on the West. Rob Long on what the success of Top Gun might mean about conservative movies and conservative institutions in Hollywood. Jim Meggs on electric cars. Our own Christine Rosen has two pieces, two pieces, one on how trauma became a, uh, a political weapon, psychological trauma, and the other on how the media refused to reckon with their role in the damage that the pandemic, uh, has done to American teenagers. There's a lot more, a lot more great stuff. Gil Troy on the Arab-Israeli conflicts. I mean, I can't even, it's so rich, so thick that you will spend the summer enjoying it if you are a subscriber. And if you're not yet a subscriber, subscribe and you will spend the summer enjoying it. Go to commentary.org for more details. So, um, we thought maybe we would get uh, the big blowout uh, Supreme Court decision that will change all of life as we know it, but it appears that uh, we are not going to get that today. So we'll talk about last night's primaries. Um, and uh, the question really is in a, an unusual circumstance down by the border in Texas, a special election Uh in a district that is where this will be the last vote because this district will no longer exist as of November. Uh, but the incumbent in that district will now be uh, a Republican for the first time in a hundred, more than a hundred years. Uh, Noah, let's uh, try to fill in for everybody what, what, what happened last night. Sure. Um, so this one has been 
on the radar, I think, of just about only people who were really plugged into politics for a long time. And first, I remember seeing red flags raised on, on Democrats, among Democrats, um, was on June 1st. So this district, they've been conducting some polling, suggested that it was leaning a little more red than it should. Obviously, a century's worth of votes suggest that this is a Democratic district. It's a border district right around along the Rio Grande. And Republicans had put in a significant amount of money in play behind a political newcomer, a local outreach, Hispanic outreach director, Myra Flores. And Democrats began raising some, some concerns about this right around early June, saying, listen, we, we're in a conundrum here. If we don't spend here, if we don't commit resources to this, we could lose. And it would suggest a political earthquake because this is an 85% Hispanic district that's been blue since you know, your grandmother was not alive. Um, at the same time, if we don't, if we do spend here, it's a waste of money because this district has already, as you said, been redistricted. It was a it was a Biden plus four district in 2020. It's going to be a Biden plus 14 district next year. So this is from uh, a quote from the uh, a spokesperson for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, quote, a Democrat will represent Texas 34 in January. If Republicans spend money on a seat that's out of their reach in November, great. But Myra Flores is a far right mega extremist who's completely out of touch with technical blah, 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 blah. Bottom line is they say, OK, whatever. Republicans throw your money away on this Pyrrhic victory. Um, and they did. And then eight days out. Well, we should say race. she said that after My Myra Flores, the Republican candidate, won. She's like, the sure, now you can spend all your money. Right. Uh, the the DCCC, CCCC spokesman. Uh, now you can spend all your money and lose. Nah, 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 which is a very interesting way to re respond to a law, a seat that you just lost. So eight days out, Democratic groups actually did go on the air in this district. So we're competing on an even playing field and they still lost and lost substantially. Now, I want to I want to bring to everybody's attention in this audience the whistling past the graveyard uh, take from Democrats and Democratic campaign officials who, who want to pretend as though what we're witnessing isn't happening. It's from Simon Rosenberg. He's a DC political strategist. He, um, he works for the uh, DNC, DCCC, CC, Clinton warm room guy. Quote, I know it's a popular narrative right now, but the idea that there's some huge new pro-GOP tilt with Hispanic voters doesn't really hold up under scrutiny. He goes on to say that their polling suggests that the, quote, numbers are looking more like uh, the blue wave year of 2018 than 2020 among Hispanic voters. And Dems have picked up five Senate seats and seven House seats and all 31 electoral college votes in states like Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Hispanic dominated seats. So he's this is the Niedermeyer take of the day. Nothing to see here. Nothing to worry about. Quote, as the Hispanic electorate gets younger and has more infrequent voters than the overall electorate and many new voters each cycle, Democrats have to keep earning these votes every year. But as, these, as the numbers suggest, Hispanic voters have been uh, have are, uh, in these new polls in Arizona, Nevada, Pennsylvania. The abortion issue, if anything, is benefiting Democrats more than Republicans and Hispanics continue to support Democrats in numbers disproportionate to their overall uh, representation broadly and and certainly more than they support Republicans. So nothing to see here, according to Simon Rosenberg. That's insane. This response is insane. We now have two 
straight election years of data or two, you know, two significant we have seen in in these small rural counties that are admittedly quite unpopulated shifts of 50 to 60 points in these counties, both in 20 and in 22 toward Republicans from Democrats. We have seen shifts toward Republicans in an entirely different uh, Hispanic population in South Florida of 20 to 30 points. Um, we are seeing a potential demographic earthquake uh, in which uh, Latinos, and particularly regionally in, in, in certain regions, um, are wholesale shifting their political allegiance from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And if Democrats want to pretend that it's not happening, good luck to them. Moreover, because this, this uh, victory uh, from Flores suggests that this is not a Biden problem. This is a, a Democratic Party problem. This candidate right. did not outrun Joe Biden's numbers among Hispanics. Look, by the way, we've also seen it's not just in, in election outcomes or in voting. Issue polling has now consistently been showing Hispanics um, absolutely leaving or drifting from democratic issues, social justice issues, even and especially those issues that uh, Democrats uh, are aiming uh, toward, quote, people of color. Right. So the whole question that is being raised, I'm glad you used the term people of color, because that is the ultimate question here is the Democratic Party has asserted its dominance and control electorally over minority populations in the United States. So they are assuming that, um, you know, black people who make up 13 percent of the population and Hispanics who now make up it's sort of it's hard to it's hard to categorize because a lot of people are called Hispanics who have Hispanic forebears, but go back 150, 200 years in the country and have very little to do demographically with anybody except, you know, the way their name is spelled. Um, but Hispanics may double that or, you know, come or, or 18, 19 percent. I'm not even sure what larger than larger than African-Americans. And the idea is this is the Democrat. This is what, what the Democrats have in their pocket. They got this in their pocket and they can move on to get progressive liberals, women, uh, you know, progressive women and all of that. And um, if if, as has seemed to be the case, uh, they cannot take uh, 70 to 80 percent majorities of Hispanic voters for granted any longer, that that is the most significant political development of our lifetime i mean there there nothing well, maybe could... maybe on par with the shift of the white working class away from the new deal coalition right well okay but that that has been going on since the 80s right that or you know accelerating to, dramatically the, the reagan the 2010s, democrats yeah. yeah the reagan democrat was a phenomenon 42 years ago the hispanic shift to the center right there were all these, you know, there have all been these kind of penumbras and emanations. You know, they're, they're more socially conservative. They don't hold with this. They're actually they're actually rapidly advancing into the middle class, and therefore they have pocketbook concerns they didn't used to have. But they don't feel, it appears very clear, that increasingly Hispanics do not feel as though the political interests of, say, African Americans precisely align with theirs. They are There's not, no such they, thing as Hispanic political interest. Right. There's no such thing as a Hispanic block. 
Well, there was. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, if you were going to look at populations as blocks, you would say that all things being equal, Hispanics, you know, voted 70-30 Republican. The first, uh, 70-30 Democrat, the first real obvious chink in the armor was in 2016, after Trump ran so hard at the Mexican-American judge who was deciding his bankruptcy case. And, you know, uh, the idea that, you know, migrants from Mexico were all killers because of the murder of uh, Kate Steinle uh, in San Francisco and stuff like that. And a lot of us thought, well, okay, I mean, he's really going to take a beating with, with Hispanic voters in general. And Trump got exactly the same vote in 2016 29%, according to exit polls, of the Hispanic population in the United States as Mitt Romney got in 2012. Now, that was down from Bush, who by some estimates got close to 40% in 2004. Bush, of course, being famously friendly, uh, immigration friendly, a Spanish speaker, you know, somebody who sort of understood how to talk to, uh, to Hispanic populations. Nonetheless, uh, so there was a real decline as the party got harder and harder line and increasingly didn't really sh understand the difference between, you know, <laughs> hardworking legal immigrants and bad illegal immigrants, but sort of lumped them all together. But when Trump was not only not punished, but that it was clear that the Republican Party was now solidly 30 percent of the Hispanic community, um, and then as 2020 rolled around and these border counties and South Florida and uh, and the Democratic Party's increasingly radical notion that um, uh, it was that um, uh, new rules should be promulgated for illegal immigrants to jump them in lines that previously legal immigrants who are now citizens had had to wait in very soberly and over a long period of time to get their, you know, first to get their green card and then to get their citizenship. Um, that sort of like canceling student debt, a lot of people in this country were saying, well, why, why are they getting this preferential treatment? Like I, I did my time. I waited my turn. They need to wait their turn. This is not fair. Um, a lot of different stuff. And then I think a lot of the uh, social justice, uh, criminal justice, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter stuff struck them as being, you know, it's like in, in, in somehow in the name of some grand uh, rainbow coalition that, you know, their communities were now increasingly unsafe because of all these reforms that were being promulgated in the name of you know minority justice and so we don't know where that number is going to go in 2022 we have no reason to think that these gains are going to be reversed and if they're if we're seeing a generational shift not simon rosenberg's nonsense generational shift that says that young hispanics are all pro-abortion I don't know even where he gets that. And Simon Rosenberg is a notorious poll bullshitter and, you know, and, and one of those guys like Dick Morris who will say whatever it is he has to say to make it sound like his party is in good odor. Um, I mean, that's just historically his 
his nature as a as a as a pundit or as a as a political spokesman. Um, I mean, come on. Again, we're we're back to Abe's point, which is you're a new voter. You're coming online in 2022 or 2020. You know, like what's happening? Inflation. By the way, inflation's you know running close to 10. percent We just had this really horrible retail sales number just came out as we were as we were on this podcast. Retail sales shrank. 0.3%, harbinger of a recession, the harbinger, the harbinger of a recession right there, having, of course, already had a negative growth quarter. Like if the retail sales in the second quarter are down 0.3%, we may officially be in a recession. Yeah, that's exactly right. You you don't know you're in a recession until you've, you've been in it for months. You know, on the, the Everything's a retroactive indicator. So if we get a negative growth quarter in Q2, it will mean we've been living through a recession and are in one right now. And, you know, look, all the political data suggests that the American people, we keep seeing these things where, you know, Biden suck ups and Democratic people who are hysterical about, you know, the coming tsunami and all that are like, no, no, things are fine. Just people don't understand that things are good. Look at the, you know, look at the unemployment numbers. Look at this. Look at that. And, um, you know, you can't tell people that they're not feeling what they're feeling and they're experiencing what they're experiencing. If they're saying that the economy is in terrible shape and they give Biden numbers in the 20s on his handling of the economy. That's not because three million people on Fox News don't like Biden. That's because, again, once again, they're paying five and a half dollars for gas. Food prices are going up. Their incomes are not going up, you know, week by week to pay off the change, you know, to sort of pay pay for the increased cost of gas and food, um, you know, and then if you're a, as you say, John, if you're a, a new Hispanic voter coming online and you're facing all this, what do you see? Uh, AOC issuing a video explaining why you, you should be using the term Latinx, which I mean, and every time she does it, she did it last week. She they lose more Hispanic voters. I mean, look. What will happen will happen. We have this is a very interesting election year. Um, what people don't really understand is that or, you know, haven't really reckoned with. There's one fantastic piece of data for Republicans and one kind of Plato's cave piece of data for Republicans. The fantastic piece of data for Republicans is that right now, uh, around this time in 2010, when Republicans were, you know, six months or five months away from this colossal victory, the shellacking of 2010. The generic ballot was about a point and a half in Republicans' favor. It's now about three and a half points in Republican favor. So you can say it's almost three times where it was at the same time in the same cycle. Uh, These are the best Republican generic numbers that we've ever seen. Um, uh, But the Plato's Cave number is that because Republicans did so unexpectedly well in 2020 in the House races, uh, we're, we it will be almost impossible for for there to be a number like the 63 seat gain that there was in 2010. Well, it would only I mean, be 35 seats, 34 no, seats, 34 seats. Gets no, 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 them. 29 seats, because um, Crash Hour just did this math today. 29 seats to match their 2010 gains. Right. And 35 30, or right. 37 seats gets them to the highest total of Republicans since 1928 in the House which would be 248. 
highest number of Republicans ever. I mean, you know, in 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 a hundred years. And is that reachable? Oh yes, it's reachable. It, it's a stretch, and it will have to. They will have to run the table. They'll have to run the table, pretty much in every district that Biden won by less than five points, in order to get to that point. But right now, I think you would give that. You would say odds for that were fifty fifty that they could run the table, um, given all these numbers and by the fact that Biden's poll number is now under thirty nine, like his real clear politics have. He is now mired in the high 30s and now there's this whole debate about is has he reached you know a, a floor like is this as low as he can possibly get i don't know why it's as low as he could possibly get Not he just has to, to get lower by democrats by democrats panicking and saying that he sucks which you know clearly a bunch of them are now saying because that's not just Republicans and independents who've gotten him to 38 or you know 30 or 38 and a half like there are some democrats who are jumping ship i we don't know if they're progressives or if they're moderate who cares but all of these things and this and these canary in the special elections are a canary in the cold mine if maria uh you know uh is uh, has has won this you know has won this amazing uh shocking victory even if it only keeps her in office for six months Special elections represent the canary in the coal mine. It was the special election win of Harris Wofford in Pennsylvania uh, in 1991 that made that that suggested that 1990 that uh, that that Bush was in real trouble and that he was going to get blown out by Perot and and Clinton in 92. Special elections in 2017 were the harbinger of 2018's massive Democratic sweep. I mean, you know, th- this is this is how it works. And uh, you're not going to see it in the mainstream press because actually pointing it out uh, without a lot of qualification, uh, uh, that doesn't help them. Like their their readers and their listeners and their watchers like get angry when they when they start reporting on bad news for for Democrats. Um, I was on a panel with Barry Weiss. I said I told I, I think I mentioned our 2022 commentary roasty uh, Sunday. And she made the point that, you know, you want to know why doesn't the New York Times do this or why doesn't the New York Times do that? Well, advertisers don't matter much anymore. Advertisers used to be a, a break against paper, against news coverage getting too crazily lopsided. What matters is subscribers. And when the New York Times does a subscriber survey and discovers that 90% of its readers are Democrats or liberals or progressives, it is going to do what it has to do to make sure that they don't get pissed off at the New York Times. And that means, you know, don't nobody bring me no bad news. And this is the worst news. You know, there was a lot of bad news last night for Democrats. But we should talk about the bad news last night for Republicans or good news, depending on who you are as a Republican. Before I get to that, I want to talk to you about Bambi. Because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries at an average of $70,000 a year. That's not cheap. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. And it costs $99 a month because for Bambi's dedicated HR manager who helps to craft HR policy and maintain your compliance. With Bambi, change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, real-time chat from onboarding determinations. They'll customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month, month-to-month. No hidden fees. Cancel anytime. 
Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today by going to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule that free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash commentary spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And you heard him yesterday. You should read him today. That's our friend David Bonson, who was our guest yesterday. And I'm back to tell you about his book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. Look, retail sales fell fell 0.3%. Fed's going to act today. They probably raise interest rates by three quarters of a percentage point. Where does this come from? How does it work? How does this structure fit in to our larger understanding of human dignity, human flourishing, and how the economy is an expression of those at its best and how it is a reflection of the distortions of those at its worst? That's what you can get from David's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. David knows where he speaks. He runs an investment firm that has uh, $3.5 billion under management. And, uh, and so uh, he brings to that work a focus on uh, philosophical understanding of the economy that is second to none. So that's There's No Free Lunch, 250 Truths by David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Go to Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you get your books and get it today. So let's move on to the Republicans. Uh, we have a split Trump decision, right? We have two, we had two contested primaries, one in South Carolina, wait, one in South Carolina, one in, uh, uh, two in South Carolina and five-term Congressman uh, Tom Rice was ousted in a blowout uh, primary where he only got 25% of the vote. Rice, who maybe had the weirdest Trump record uh, uh, on record, which is that on Jan, he voted not to certify the election results uh, um, for Biden. And then he uh, voted to impeach Trump based on the actions on January 6th. Um, but because he voted to impeach Trump, uh, Trump went after him. Uh, endorsed his uh, primary candidate and uh, his primary rival and the primary rival crushed him. So that's uh, five. And that guy will be in the, will be in the house come November. Cause that's like a, I don't know, Trump plus 30 district or something like that. So rice is out, uh, says he's proud of his vote. He did what he had to do. And it's always good to do the right thing. Um, and then in uh, Nancy Mace, who, uh, won in 2018 and was also uh, hostile to Trump, won, won uh, against her primary rival by eight points, uh, prevailed with uh, enough of a vote not to face a runoff. So that's uh, Trump one of two. There were some other races where he endorsed and people won, but he was generally endorsing person who was ahead in the polls anyway. No, where do you... Yeah, by and large, you're talking about Nevada. Nevada, there was a Nevada. Nevada. Um, there was uh, a, a particularly Trumpy conspiratorial state of uh, Secretary of State candidate who won, who's giving everybody shivers. But Adam Lexalt, uh, who is the poll leader, Trump endorsed, won the uh, state uh, nomination to be uh, to to be the GOP nominee for U.S. Senate in Nevada against Nevada against a. Um, uh, an upstart who was positioning himself as more Trumpy than the Trumpy endorsed candidate. And he was doing very well in fundraising and um, surging in the polls last minute, but he didn't pull it out. So that's sort of a weird one too to identify the Trump record there. But if you can, 
we have a lot of primaries under our belt now. And if you, it's, there's a, the mixed bag element, right? And if there's one unifying theme that I can identify, it's that getting crosswise with Trump is survivable on a whole range of issues. Um, and, you know, elections are local and they have local issues. And so the Trump endorsement matters to a certain degree, but there is a limit to it, with the exception of January 6th. If you get anywhere near or flirt with the idea that the president enjoys any responsibility whatsoever for the events that culminated in the Capitol riot, you're going to get nailed by the Republican electorate. And it makes sense to a degree if you think that the Trump movement, the real core of Trump's movement, is animated by the idea that they are subjected to persecution by forces larger than them, unseen, uh, hard to identify, but nevertheless ever present and exerting influence over your circumstances that is persecutorial and unjust, then that makes sense. If you think that the, the January 6th committee and the subsequent investigations into that event have, have unfairly targeted Donald Trump, then it, it all sort of falls into place. So that's my theory of everything to explain Republican primary results so far. By the way, that goes to show um, another potential problem of the, the, the January 6th committee now sort of showing evidence of overreach, perhaps, you know, going going to after uh, Trump criminally here, maybe without grounds. Um, that's going to make a lot of people dig in. That is going to exacerbate that persecution complex. I want to talk. So there's also interesting stuff going on, because, of course, what, what is the central claim uh, that the that the election was, you know, was was uh, wrongly or unjustly decided or whatever shouldn't have been certified. It's it's all about voting machines. Right. And they're still fighting. There's a fight going on in a in a in a county in New Mexico in which Republicans in charge of the of the of the of the vote count one place are refusing to certify the count because Dominion voting machines are being used and they just don't like Dominion voting machines. And I, something stuck in my head, and I was sort of being tickled by this because the Secretary of State in the state, who's a Democrat, has had to sue to force them to report a count, which they say they can't do because they just don't like the machines. <laughs> so, um, and I was reminded that there was this movie with Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis uh, called The Campaign, which came out in 2012, which was about an election in I think in North Carolina, um, uh, and uh, you see at the climax of the move, uh, the villains in the movie are two brothers with the name Motch, M O T C H, and the logo of the Motch brothers looks exactly like the Coke brothers. So it's the same as Co as Coke Industries, Motch Industries, and. Uh, as the vote is being counted, because the machas want idiot the idiot uh, uh, to win, uh, you see uh, you see a voting machine, and suddenly the vote count changes uh, somehow illicitly and re records the wrong result, and the winner is the guy that the machas want, and you then see the logo of Mach, right? So this is a movie executive, you know, Will Ferrell is the was then. 
uh, screenplay or the story was by Adam McKay, the big leftist filmmaker. And so conspiracies involving voting machines, the provenance of the conspiracy involving the voting machine is not Donald Trump in 2020. It is Democrats in 2004. And I want to commend to your attention a speech given by none other than Barack Obama, if I can find it here, hold on, his first speech as a senator delivered 6 January 2005. That would be the day in 2005 when the electors, the uh, the, the electoral count was accepted uh, by the Senate the same January 6th that we saw 15, 16 years later that turned into the the riot. Okay. So this is Obama's uh, speech. Um, he says, I'm absolutely convinced that the president of the United States, George Bush, won this election. I also believe that he got more votes in Ohio. I think it's already been said by some of the speakers in this body. He is not, this is not an issue in which we're challenging the outcome of this election. I was not in this body four years ago, but what I observed as a voter, as a citizen of Illinois four years ago, was troubling evidence of the fact that not every vote was being counted. So that's referring to Florida. I would strongly urge, yeah, I strongly urge this chamber to take it upon itself once and for all to reform this system. I would strongly urge that in a circumstance in which too many voters have stood in long lines for hours, in which too many voters have cast votes on machines that jam or malfunction or suck the votes without a trace uh, that they change the system. So Barack Obama in 2005 is talking about election machines that suck votes without a trace. I only bring this up because we are now getting this unbelievably pious treatment of, you know, the, of, of the notion that our democracy is at risk because of these lies, which it may well be, but these lies were invented. These lies were invented by the Democrats to explain losses that they could not handle. Does that sound familiar? I mean, yeah, it's hey, true. Yeah. Obviously it's true. Um, but you know, can consistency should compel everybody who objected to the Diebold conspiracy. Well, that's the one that was the Diebold conspiracy. Right. I mean, yeah. that, what, what Barack Obama was saying was a much more elevated, refined version of the Diebold conspiracy. Um, and we're privy to the very same thing from Republicans. So if you oppose the Diebold conspiracy, which was just as well supported as um, whatever these machines are, I forget the name of them, that as every every right wing Republican. Smart, crosswise. smart, smart tech. Yes. And, so and Dominion and Dominion. Dominion is the one I'm thinking of. That's the yeah. Venezuelan machines. Uh, it's all it's all crazy. It's all one di different species of nutter. Uh, Abe. Yeah, and also on, on the point about uh, the piousness, the, the 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 piety at work here. Um, Noah had a great piece. No, was this yesterday or the day before? It was about, yesterday. Yeah, about, about Democrats supporting the 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 conspiracy theorist Republican candidates uh, in hopes of them losing. And and you know with actual you know money and camp campaigns behind them. Um, if this is the, the threat that they say, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing Noah's piece online. If, if all this represents the threat to democracy that they say, um, why are they so cynically using it to, 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 to 
inspire more of to, to get more of it uh, in order j- just to just to uh, g- gain some sort of edge in the general elections. Yeah. So this this piece forced me to do something I don't like to do, which is to write in the first person, because I'm tragically sincere about what I think occurred on January 6th and the scope of the threat to American institutions of self-governance that are represented. Um, and I'm really put off by the fact that we have, we're subjected to the sanctimonious rhetoric from Democrats about the same threat, which I agree with. Um, while at the same time, Democratic campaign organs, Nancy Pelosi affiliated PACs and what have you are intervening in races in Colorado, in California, in um, uh, Illinois, in Pennsylvania, where it was successful, elevating Doug Mastriano, who has dedicated himself to 2020 revanchism and overturning uh, you know, election law in that in that state in order to affect the kind of changes he wants to see in 2024, um, which based all, entirely on conspiracy theories. To hear them do this um, isn't grossly hypocritical and reckless um, for two reasons. One, this is the same strategy that we were privy to in 2010 when Harry Reid's campaign intervened to uh, uh, get Susan Loudon out of uh, out of the way and and make Sharon Engel the nominee for Nevada Senate. Uh, similarly, Claire McCaskill bragged about how her campaign managed to beat John Bruner in the primary and elevate Todd Akin. But those and they were unpalatable candidates, but they were unpalatable in ways that are totally conventional. They had views on abortion and entitlement spending that were maybe a little out of step with the electorate. What we're playing with now is elevating what we are told is something that should transcend politics, this idea that this myth-making around uh, the 2020 election that catalyzed a mob. And we were told that that was something that was just beyond the pale and, and partisan uh, divisions should, should blur and just disappear in, in our unity uh, around being uh, repulsed by that and, and making sure that it never happens again. And yet we're privy to this strategy that elevates these candidates because they're perceived to be more beatable. Well, maybe not. We had a poll today from Pennsylvania that puts the, the race for governor in Pennsylvania between Mastriano and the state secretary, uh, secretary of state uh, Shapiro. It's pretty much a dead heat. It's within the margin of error. Um, in a wave election, surprises happen. There's no guarantee that these candidates are going to lose their races. And Democrats are contributing materially to their to their potential uh, that they could take control of their of these states, these very critical states. And they're doing it. Uh, in most cynical possible fashion that really does uh, demonstrate their hypocrisy and how little they actually, the campaign campaign strategists, how little they actually believe their own rhetoric around January 6th. Well, by the way, they, I mean, this is what they did in 20s, I mean, not the, not the uh, campaign funding part, but Democrats and liberals were tickled at the rise of Donald Trump in 2016 because he was so crazy and beatable. It was wonderful. The GOP has become a clown show. We're going to we're, we're going to we're going to dominate for for generations to come. How'd that I mean, turn out? Yeah. So if you love politics as a game and as sort of like as a as a um, as a as a sort of institution in which, you know, people do all kinds of interesting things, the the jujitsu, the complex play of interfering in the other party's nominating process in order to get a candidate that's easier for you to beat. Like that's the stuff of campaign manager legend. That's, that's what you want. You want to say, you know what? I am so Machiavellian. I am so good at this 
that I, Claire McCaskill, I figured out how to get my worst opponent or my most defeatable opponent to, to crush my most defeatable opponent. And, uh, you know, we'd be fantastic. Like that, I did that. And, you know, it's so much fun because, you know, I won and they lost and I discredited that person and I won by 16 points. And I'm not only like a good person and a good legislator, but I am, man, am I good at politics? You know, this is the ultimate people you call it cynical. Noah's post is, is, is great on this topic. But it's also a kind of vanity about being, it's a vanity of competence, of like hyper-competence. And yeah, I mean, be careful what you wish for, because Josh Shapiro should arguably walk into that uh, governor's mansion, and he really may not. And he really may not, because if they'd gotten a blander, you might think that a blander Republican would be a better candidate, but maybe not. Maybe you need the kind of special weird crazy juice that Mastriano can bring to that race because people who are going to vote against the Democrats are going to vote against the Democrats, not no matter who it is. And then you need higher turnout among the crazies to put you right over the top. So thinking that, you know, how this is going to break among the people whom you don't represent is a fool's errand. And, and aside from everything else, this should really bust the myth of this hyper competence and Machiavellian genius. But that a lot, a lot of that is uh, a lot of that is at play, and I think the other thing that's at play is that we should probably get get out of here and let you go on with your day. Uh, so uh, we will be convening tomorrow with a special guest. Uh, until then, uh, for Noah and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.